0: Welcome to Ghost Divers, uh, an anime podcast where we look at, uh, I kind of have this like rule that we're not going to watch anything that's new. I don't have a firm definition on that other than a few years, but yeah, we kind of watch old anime and talk about it. Um, My name is Niev, I'm joined by my co-host Connor.
1: Hey everyone.
0: And today we are going to be discussing the first six episodes of Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex. So I I think just to kind of start things off here in like a very film studies approach, this is my background, this is what I have a degree in, a, a favored thing of lots of people writing essays about films and things is to start with like, what's the first scene? What's the first thing you see? So we can maybe start with this like opening quote and the initial scene.
1: Yeah, I think it's always a, a question of where do you start with a series like this. But episode one really it it almost anticipates that problem, because it's so methodical about in its world building. And it just kind of lays everything out in a really uh tight, controlled way. So it does a lot of the work for us. And I think the first step of that is like is by providing us this quotation at the beginning, which we don't have to read through the whole thing. But it's a really good uh, primer for everything that follows, and I think my take on this, uh, in a way, this quotation is kind of straightforward world building. The series it focuses so heavily on the this new state of technology, and especially the like interconnectedness and permeability of of consciousness that it allows, and then just more generally, like what that means for humanity. Uh, so i think this quotation it it almost just serves a function of like marking out the known limits of this technology that the technology hasn't reached such this point where uh, a standalone entity can be distinct within a larger system and more than that it's it's setting up this theme which is also signaled in the title of the standalone complex which will be uh, we'll see is developed um throughout the the series
0: yeah I think also there's like especially in watching this for I don't know what number time third time for the podcast because we watched <laughs> twice before I watched it like once and then I watched it again and now I'm watching it a third time for this podcast specifically um, it really struck me as like a thesis statement that and I mean this not in the like I'm going to write like an undergrad essay thesis statement. I made it in like almost the dialectic sense of like we are putting forth this starting thesis that we are then going to like in some ways strengthen, in some ways complicate, and in some ways like uh, further develop upon. And it like in it really struck me in that sense too because I think every time that I've read this opening statement, it's felt. Like, it becomes enriched by knowing the entire series and then reading it again and going, like, oh, this is what it was talking about. Because <laughs> um, I think the very first time you read it, the um, especially if you're kind of in your, like, I'm going to just turn my brain off and watch anime mode. Yeah, it's like, what is this anime bullshit? Yeah, <laughs> you're like, what, what the, like, fuck are you talking about? <laughs> like, what do you? this is nonsense. This is gibberish. This is like, you're just trying to make it sound like a cool sci-fi future. <laughs> and then you like watch the series and then you come back and you read it like the second time you're watching through and you're like, Oh yeah. Like, like wait, this, this isn't actually, pretentious yeah. at all. They're just
1: like telling us exactly like what the, what the situation is. But then I think it's also
0: interesting that they start with this like very isolated scene. I, I feel like throughout the rest of this series, we will often get this kind of cold open where there's something happening that doesn't directly seem connected to what's been happening with the like section nine with the main team or that is like ancillary but then it actually becomes like a key part of the plot it is like some instigating thing that they're then investigating throughout the rest of the episode Um, the way that it functions in this episode is like it truly is I'm going to say it standalone like in terms of plot it's literally just like oh this is a cop doing her job and then she gets a call but i think in terms of like what it's doing in terms of theme and and setting uh it's really starting to like it sets up this idea that these are like these super cops um and that's not necessarily a good thing um and i think it's important that the series like starts it like it has the bookend here of this quote of you know there's no hope for justice if you're the cops um and uh major kusanagi being like well fuck justice get over yourself because we're about to then have a bunch of episodes where i think you could read it especially if you didn't have this little taste at the beginning of being like very uncritical about The police and their role in society and government the series is about to fall into some straight police procedural for a little bit that can often come across as this like rah rah the cops are great and i don't know if it ever fully comes down on like a super heavy handed message but i think starting it out here like at least makes you aware that they're aware of this tension or ambiguity they're playing with, that they aren't approaching this completely uncritically, even if I'm sure people could read this series as still being like very pro cop, which as someone who is not pro cop, I don't know if I fully agree with, but also (laughs) it's like, it is a tension, especially this time that we've watched it, um, of me being like, Ooh, this, like this show sure loves some cop drama.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think um, I think this is where like the subtlety uh, it, it shows itself right away. The series is immediately asking you to identify with the a police protagonist, a really like a set of protagonists who are police and secret police. Uh, moreover, and th- there isn't a clear uh, a signal from the you know the god's eye view of like condemnation or approval. But I think the the material is there that the actions are presented between, matter of factly, in in a way that allows viewers to kind of make their own judgment. So I'm I'm right there with you that I think it I, I think it would be hard to to make a pro police reading. I don't know if it's exactly anti police, but it certainly presents police brutality in in a way that. Uh, is not sugarcoated. Yeah.
0: I think like to close off this extended analysis of the first few like like the first minute I guess of this episode is we also get this threat of head trauma as the major points the gun at the criminal's head. And this will of course pay off later in the episode, but I think is one of the first like big instances when you first see it you don't even necessarily realize of them doing this like gradual introduction of both key concepts um thematically in terms of like this is what this work is talking about but also just in terms of like we are going to explain to you how the technology in this world works but we're going to do it in ways that feel natural that feel like it is just a part of the way the story is being told that then brings you into like i those technologies are part of the the like groundwork that lets them then deal with some of the other conceptual things that they're talking about. Um, And like these first few episodes in general just do a very good job of gradually introducing you to uh, technology, like the brain case and brain case swapping the like increased vulnerability that comes with the increased strengths of having these cyberized bodies where things can get hacked in various ways that, like, having a normal human body cannot be hacked the same way. And head trauma really figures heavily in this episode because I think they're really, at this point, trying to just hammer home in, like, this very literal sense this difference between, like, the brain being something that houses the ghost in some way that like cannot be fully cyberized or um, you know like fully replicated and then the shell like the body that is like we can mass produce these as like basically robots and then we put your brain into them and so the head trauma that we see here is uh, primarily the geishas that like a bunch of police brutality occurs they shoot a bunch of geishas in the head they're robot geishas but there's still like this sense of like you have to shoot it in the head to truly kill it is like the most literal way that this is being conveyed which is in this like very physical literal way that we understand our bodies like oh okay like the head is the brain the brain especially within western understandings of the self I know sometimes this is more complicated in certain, like, Eastern philosophies. Like, I am Taoist. I read Taoist things. A lot of those have less of a clear distinction between the brain and the body. And this series is specifically exploring a division that occurs between mind and body that I think is very prevalent in Western thought and is, like, giving you the... um, I'm going to use like a faux pas word, but I think it applies here because it does involve viscera, the visceral, like actual distinction between the brain and the body and how those like even just medically are, are seen as part of a system, but also having like key differences.
1: Yeah. And I think um, especially more to your point, uh, there's a scene in episode one where the major is, I, I believe it's when they're surveying the, they're, they're looking at the surveillance footage or there's they're surveilling like the scene uh, as it's happening and uh, she says like oh um, we have one one person's wounded with severe trauma and then we have one confirmed casualty but the body on the ground is like it's clearly a cybernetic body but if you look closely it's there's like the brain case is missing so the fact that she, she says, like, oh, confirmed casualty. You can kind of deduce, like, oh, okay, it's it's because this brain case is missing. So uh, I think episode one, it it really grounds, like, the brain and the brain case as, like, the seat of consciousness in, in a way that's, it's almost like a thesis statement, like you were saying before, where it will, this will kind of become more complicated and, and worked out later on. But just as, like, an expository function, I think it. this episode does a, a really good job of, like, setting up all of these ideas.
0: Yeah, and I my, like, final note with this episode, I don't know if you have anything else you want to say here before I kind of finish off in third episode two. Uh No, go ahead. Um. So, yeah, I think, like, this episode also has this first little touch to the like transhumanist and um, especially this like queer or trans resonance form where the whole like this whole case and the solution to it one like hinges on the brain case and the fact that like a brain case could be stolen or like you could swap bodies Um, but it's first like that idea of body swapping is first introduced from the idea of this official liking to swap bodies with the geishas which is referring to some sort of view of like transsexuality or, or cha- uh, transgender identities as being like a deviant in some way which one i think is just coming from like a societal point of view of when this is made where this was made but i think i don't know how intentional some of the transgender like trans resonance in this story necessarily is i think it is intentionally transhumanist and i think it is difficult to um have narratives about transhumanism that do not in some way have to reckon with gender and i think the show does discuss gender we'll get into it more later on but i think it's still introducing you to it um in this way that i think is like um i mean Yeah, it it is introducing it to you as this like fetishistic object first, and I think like I part of me wonders how much of that is intentional or unintentional on the the part of the people making this. Um, but I do think it's going to complicate like viewing the work as it is and from my perspective. I think the work goes beyond this and I think it is very interesting that it first introduces as this like fetishistic version that is kind of I think the default assumption in a lot of society and then it's going to go wait 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 but it's actually more complex than this and like part of me wonders if it is intentional on the part of the people making this because literally episode two is about like transhumanism, it is about this man dying and being reincarnated as a tank. Um, that is like final wish is to have this tank as his body, and there's just all kinds of trans resonance in this episode. Uh, is one of my favorite episodes because of that. And you know, to to return a little bit to like this series is feeding you key concepts. We definitely get some more complication from, you know, the brain case was introduced and now it's further um, introducing you to ideas of cybernetics, prosthetic bodies, how you can inhabit different bodies that are not like the body that you were born in, and also how that, like the existence of that potentiality um, that technology has made that potential a reality is also viewed by members of society where there is this tension. You know, the uh, Kago, the person who wants to be this tank, comes from a family that has a religious background that is uh, against cyberization. Um, they don't really talk about, like in the episode, I don't think, purity of the body, but there is some of that almost. Uh, sense here and especially from this trans resonance point of view there's this very like the final ending we get this kind of hit of the major i think it's important that the major is the character who sees this and no one else does that everyone kind of assumes that someone would want a tank body for perverse or dangerous or terrible reasons that it is to wreak havoc that it is to get revenge and the glimpse of the final dying thoughts of Kago is is this like, well, mom, what do you think of my steel body? And it is not one of anger. It is not one of pride, I think are the two specific ones that she kind of mentions. Mm-hmm. Um, it really feels like this thing that we get um, that I think exists for a lot of trans people with that homecoming after, um, especially like coming out medical transitions where even if you have a strange relationship with your parents because of that, I think a lot of trans people, I'm not going to speak for everyone, but they, they want more of just this like acceptance. Like, can you just accept that this is my body? What do you think of who I am now? I am happy with this. Can you like recognize that? And I, the story is specifically referring to this being kind of like they leave it ambiguous but i think the the episode intentionally wants you to believe that the major is right here and again i think it's important that it is the major that it is uh Motoko who like experiences this because there's going to be a narrative arc throughout the rest of the series about major kusanagi about her relationship to her body into her gender and how all of that plays out that i it is important. Uh, Like this show is so good at introduce, like hitting you with multiple concepts at the same time. So that when you first watch this episode, you're like, Oh, this is about like the transhumanist body, whatever. And like in that moment, you don't really realize that what they're also setting up is that they're going to be talking about this with the major. Like they will so often introduce something where I think the first time you watch it, at least for me it was just like oh this is about like them teaching me about technology that exists in this world like this very matter-of-fact world building that's about um how does the world work in like this oh like here we've thought through these different pieces of it um there's like a hard
1: sci-fi aspect of this episode. yeah
0: yeah this kind of hard sci-fi like oh here's just how this works like mechanically but every time they they're doing it they're always also setting up like these are key concepts that we are talking about that are specifically about the human experience and again like this series is for sure interested in transhumanism and like it is impossible i think to make a a work especially a compelling work about transhumanism um that does not in some way have resonance with like transgender experience. There's just a reason why so many trans people love like especially cyberpunk and cyberpunk that is good about transhumanism. Um and few series are as, I think, deeply interested in complicated and uh like meaningful ways with transhumanism as Ghost in the Shell. This is it's one of the reasons why I love this series so much. It's it's just excellent.
1: Yeah, this is an episode that I think this episode in and of itself is, is a really uh, a masterpiece. If I can use such like a, a highfalutin like designation. Um, Don't worry. I'm going to talk about film theory people later on. So you're fine. Oh, good, Yeah. Well, here's, here's my auteurist. No, not really. Um, yeah. It's not an auteurist reading. <laughs> um, so episode one, it's really, it's very expository. And episode two feels like, uh, it feels like the show opening up and being like, okay, this is, this is what we're actually doing. And it, it starts off with, I think it really challenges the viewership uh, pretty explicitly, specifically with the like presentation of Kago to kind of like piggyback on some of the stuff points you've already made. I think the way that the situation with Kago, his inhabiting the tank body, um, the way it's presented, it it prompts the viewership to make the same assumption that everyone in the show like seems to make, including Section Nine and, and the company, which is that well, the only possible motive for for someone doing this is is a deviant or destructive motive. Um, yeah, they they even do this great thing
0: of when you rewatch the episode, <clears throat> you're like, oh he actually seems very intentional about not killing anyone when he destroys the uh, other tanks, but still like the first thing that you see this tank that's being stolen or whatever um, that you find out is like being inhabited by Kaga uh, is like this act of violence as well, just to like further, like when you watch it in retrospect, you're like, Oh, that's clearly like, so they don't get in the tank and come after him. That is like clearly a self-defense kind of maneuver or uh perhaps to some extent too this like I don't want there to be other bodies like mine which is another thing that will come up in like to some extent in uh the show and I know like especially um the movies the kind of episode. deal with this as well but this like the idea of the original body but I, like that also still feels in some ways self-defensive or like you know in protection of the self in an, a both physical and like more mental level um yeah i i agree
1: and i think when you rewatch it that that seems clear um and there's an irony to it as well because that's like remarked upon by kusanagi that oh well there haven't been any fatalities yet and like oh well you know with the police blockade they're like well it's it's probably not targeting you so just like move out of the way but no one seems to realize uh, because their perception is so colored by the idea of like this being a threatening thing. Um, I think also filmically, the the series is like it's almost prompting us to to react this way because I think filmically um, the tank is it's presented. I mean, in and of itself, it's a it's kind of a monstrous creation uh, as this gigantic yeah, it, weapon of war. <laughs>
0: Uh, <laughs> the like they've also briefly, you know, set up this idea of Section 9 as being like this super powerful force. And you know, it's like even they can't take down the tank, like, you know, it hacks the hawkeye um that Saito has. It has these, you know things that will redirect missiles, it has, you know, all these different Highly advanced weapons that, like even Section Nine, can't match until they get the fast-acting Mountain Dew um, at the end. <laughs> I I was struck this time by just how
1: like vivid neon green it was. But <laughs> yeah, there there are so many giant guns in this episode. It's really it's really entertaining. Yeah,
0: but no violence. Like it's notable to me um, that in these first six episodes. Uh, we really just get like the strong police brutality in episode one. And then we get like a little bit of violence towards the very end of these six episodes we're talking about, but they really pull back on like them. The door committing these acts of police brutality for a little bit. You know, we, we recorded episodes. We know
1: more is coming, but yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I think, uh, this, this idea of like someone wanting to change their body or to inhabit a different kind of body, the assumption is that not only like must the motivation be deviant, but the final product will be monstrous in some way. And Section 9 assumes this uh, in a certain way. It's implied Kago's parents, their religion, assumes this, that inhabiting another body is somehow um, or becoming saccharized is sinful or like monstrous in some way. Um, and then I think as viewers, like you go right along with it and that sets up this episode. I, I think that this is a, a tragic episode. Tragic because oh, yeah. it very, it, very <laughs> tragic. <laughs> yeah. And, and tragic because it uh, not only enacts and reveals this, this dynamic that we know to be, uh, it exists outside of the show, but also because Kago is killed under this assumption um, and only Kusanagi really sees the truth, what I take to be the truth, What I, I think we agree. Yeah. But I will say, watching it again this time, one thing that struck me newly is that although this is tragic, I think there's, a, there's an element of this that is also um, beautiful in a way. Not only did Kago attain his dream, I think there's a moment of in his dying thoughts of potentially happiness but I also noticed this time that there's a, a very strong suggestion that his parents came to understand his perspective or uh, were, were coming to understand it um, yeah we get the, the mom with the like small
0: model of the tank and like taking it as they leave suggesting Again, it's like it's this kind of thing where like it's hard for me to read this as fully like and then the parents were totally cool with it and like had fully accepted it and everything was going to be fine. But I, yeah, I think it does suggest some sort of path for those parents to grow and change in a way that I don't think having that, especially that little model and the suggestion that they are being evacuated and what she, she chooses to take is this model that like on some level could just be like, Oh, this is the thing that makes me think about my son because he's working on this tank. But at the same time, that tank being his body, like still suggests some greater possibility. Um, than I think if it had been like, let me take the photo yeah, of him. Exactly.
1: She takes the model instead of the portrait. Yeah, um, which seems like the I mean the way it's presented is like that I mean the 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 shot it, it almost lingers on that like decision and then once they emerge like they seem to know right away that it's kago inside the tank you know so it's implied like that they have knowledge that he's done this thing and then like acting on that knowledge they take the the model instead of the portrait yeah. which I think, is is certainly open to interpretation, but um, if it it's something that struck me this time, especially.
0: Yeah, I think the other part that we really haven't touched on at all with this episode is the tachikomas. Komas. Um, How could we they... forget the Tachi Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I it's interesting to me because I think like we do see the tachikomas in the first episode and of course it gets to the tachikomatic days at the end but it's also interesting to me that where they're really starting to introduce like oh here's what tachikomas are not just that you've seen them in the background um but in the same way that they are doling out here the individual characters and their roles in this episode um so they're showing you Saito and like oh Saito's the sniper you know those kinds of details They're also showing you the Tachikomas, but they're showing it to you within the context of uh, they are made by the same company that made these tanks. They are like the same model, essentially. Yeah, they they are the same kind of tank, this like bipedal tank. They're smaller, um, but there is like their body is far closer to the tank than human bodies are. And so they are also, I think, subtly starting to introduce or open up the possibility for the, the viewer watching this episode for the first time that this world, like, people within this world operate from this assumption, and we'll get more of this later, especially in the next episode. Um, so, again, like, this show is just so good at introducing concepts and developing them in the next episode, especially at the very beginning. Like, this is such a good... God, like, I love these first few episodes so much, but like, even here, they're kind of introducing you like, oh, they don't want the Tachikomas to get too much individuality. They get synced up um, the significance of the natural oil, which like we'll talk about more when we get to the episode where that becomes a key thing. But there is this like, OK, here are these artificial intelligences. Here are these human uh, like, brains in brain cases, the world is starting from this assumption that those two things are distinct in a way that the series is going to uh, complicate going forward. And so I think it is key that they are introducing you to the Tachikomas at the same time that they are saying the thing that, like, I think at this moment, the viewer is almost supposed to think, like, the thing that makes the tachikoma different than kago in this tank is not the body it is the like brain that inhabits it and then it's going to complicate that further as this series goes on this might just be a great time for us to go to episode three unless you have more to say here but
1: um yeah i think the only the only addition i would make is like this is another detail i mean if you're watching it for the first time along along with us which if you are that's awesome but if when slash if you're watching it for the first time, this seems like the discussion at the beginning of like episode two with the Tachikomas. It seems almost like a throwaway, like insignificant. Like what is this all about? But then rewatching it again, it it, it feels very significant. There's an immediate cut from the from the tank, the cargo tank, as I'll call it, uh, to the Tachikomas, which is a nice little deft filmic way of like making the connection
0: and then yeah, um, we, we've got some very like uh ziga vertov <laughs> montage going on right
1: here yeah exactly uh, um very uh yeah cl- uh, here we go some russian yeah. formalism here <laughs> <laughs>
0: match match on same form match on same shape uh convey meaning of uh like connection between these two things that is brought about by the shape uh, <laughs>
1: Yeah, and uh, then there's the parallelism, which is, like, uh, the cargo tank is a machine that has had a a brain case, in essence, a consciousness, like, implanted into it. And then the tachycomas. I mean, it's immediately discussed, like, oh, we don't want a consciousness to, like, develop organically in these things. So it's kind of, like, starting at opposite points, like, uh, in parallel in that sense, but both, even though they're different in kind, uh, seemingly, both potentially like reaching the point of consciousness and i mean we're just like in episode two here um yeah (laughs) which is why i feel like this is a really significant scene if you're in you know attentive viewer a lot of this this is going to be a major theme going forward
0: yeah so and like episode three here makes it clear that this is going to be a theme because here we get this question of whether or not an android could develop a, what the series calls a ghost, like the the soul, the thing that makes someone an individual, the thing that the series kind of starts from, I think, society having, like, we get this scene where um, there's this sociologist that's talking about the, like, android suicides that occurred with these Jerry units. And is basically saying, like, well, technically it's not a suicide because they don't have ghosts. It would be, like, we can maybe call it self-termination. And, you know, there's going to be content warnings when we for the, like, whole series at the beginning. Like, to me, this is suicide. <laughs> this, like, it it is hard to fully, like, dissociate what is happening from... Suicide, And I think the the show is trying to explicitly set up like this is a world that operates from like you see those scenes and before, you know, they're androids. You assume that it is suicide and the show then kind of reveals to you that they're robots and then like gives you like society then has this like, oh, people might like the news is calling it suicide, but that's because they're sensationalizing it. It truly isn't. It's just robots malfunctioning. And so, like, it's presenting this as, like, this is a state that society is at, the the way that they're viewing it, which I think is very similar to the way that our current society would view something like this. If Boston Dynamics robot, like, you know, self-terminated, there would probably be a news article that was like, Boston Dynamics big dog or whatever uh like commit suicide and then like there'd be some expert being like well it's not an actual like person it's not a human it's just a it like just com- program blah 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 um and like that's what we're getting from the mainstream while at the same time we are getting the very previous episode we got this tension of like oh make sure that the tachikomas don't develop too much individuality um like the, the world is also at the same time presenting us like, yes, it is possible that an android could develop something, could develop a ghost or something like a ghost. And the end of this episode doesn't fully, uh, again, the show does not tend towards really heavy handed, like, and now let's explain it to you. Um, and so there's this whole like, oh, so much of like what this Jerry unit seemed to be doing was actually from these films and i forget if this is actually i f- like are these actual quotes from a french new wave film or is it just referencing french new wave there's definitely a strong breathless vibe but it's been a while since i've watched breathless
1: yeah same but I'm not sure. like <laughs> I, shamefully yeah. like when i was watching when i was rewatching it earlier i had the thought like i should look this up <laughs> yeah and then i didn't i also thought that and then didn't um <laughs> so i but like, i'm also not viewers. sure
0: I'm also not sure it entirely matters other than this is fuel for some bullshit I'm going to get into later about Bazin and like film theory stuff. So, you know, which is like Bazin was a really key philosopher or like film theorist for the French New Wave, which we get the markers of French New Wave, uh, both in just the way that Jerry looks in general, as well as the film we really get, like, I forget the name of the actress in Breathless, but, like, they're clearly just referencing her, if not directly quoting that movie. And so, you know, the end, like, I, I think the show almost wants you to reach a conclusion before you get to that end with the uh, Togusa's wife, where you're like, oh, clearly this robot developed a ghost. And for Togusa, seeing that movie, it's like, wait this is where that came from. But then there was this extra line that's not from the movie. Did this ghost, like, did this robot actually feel love or was, like, expressing something genuine beyond just quoting a movie? Whereas I think, it, like, in the same way, the, that revelation for the audience is further complicating, like, my inclination the first time watching this was being like, well, of course the robot has a ghost, right? And then the revel- the revelation that these, this robot was just quoting... Like, essentially, a Godard film is like, oh, okay, this is like, this is complicating it for me more, and that I'm still coming to the conclusion that this robot probably developed something like a ghost, and the series is still like wanting you to keep that possibility, but is also like, I, I think, in two ways one, making you hesitate a little bit more, saying, like, this is a thing that we're not done exploring yet, and I think also at the same time like the previous episode, I think, the Tachikoma, the Tachikomatic days, um, was this, like, the first two episodes are about language and what's the importance of language if it's not a data, like, a way to share data efficiently. Um, And then it's like, oh, actually, there's, like, meaning to just the construction of words and the way that, like, language is structured, and that has, like, its own value separate from quickly transmitting data. But then also there's perhaps, like, Telling someone that I left is something that you don't need to use, like, and I'm going to be back, is something that you don't need to use, like, the full power of language if there are other ways to do it, but that language still holds, like, other value that is important. And so we get, like, the Tachikomas talking about that, while at the same time getting this thing of, like, okay, is, like, art or film or, like, the language that is film, is that something that like that interaction with that produces more for lack of a better term, like humanity or that ghost within something um, that is moving beyond what is the efficiency of programming and into what is the value of that, which is like inefficient. <laughs> yeah. The, <laughs> you know, like the, uh, I'm, I'm galaxy braiding right now, so please save me, but
1: <laughs> yeah, well, there's a, um, I'm trying to remember the exact term, but there's a, uh, God, I can't believe I'm about to reference Zizek, but, like, there's a thing in Zizek where he talks about, like, the surplus uh, being, like, essential for, like, signification. And that I think that's kind of, like, sort of what you're getting at there, where it's, like, well, there's, like, this extraneous, like, language rising beyond just, like, the basic transmittal of, like, matter-of-fact information that, like... Makes it uh, this excess of like information that's not really essential, like matter of fact stuff, it is like quote unquote human, uh, more human, or like the essence of of humanness. Now I'm not saying that, but that's a uh, that's something that you know is I think you're right. Like presented in in this in this episode, this episode is like there is so many directions you can go even just theoretically i mean we could do a whole like feminist reading of this episode if we really wanted to i don't think we're going to <laughs> um perhaps maybe by request uh later on um we we could but i i just want to get back to like what you're saying about language when i was watching it this time i was thinking like i had a kind of similar impression at the end where it's like oh, there's this revelation that togasu discovers that the jury's, like, most of the jury's final lines are, like, quotations from this film. And my first thought was, like, well, then obviously, like, she's developed a ghost because the act of, like, quoting something uh, in and of itself is is a deliberative, like, it's, it's a deliberative act. It shows, like, a, a certain uh, level of, consciousness that i think going along with like what the series has presented would be considered like quote unquote like a human level of consciousness um just the act of quoting uh from a film like in you know in your your daily life but then you could then you can go back and forth with that because uh it's kind of revealed in the same like at the same moment that this whole conversation that Marshall and the Jerry are having is just a rehearsal of like these, li- these lines from the film. So on one hand, you could read that as like, look, the the episode is showing you like Marshall who's human and clearly has a ghost, like is doing this activity of quoting in the Jerry is like doing the exact same thing. So it's creating this like connection showing that they're like, they're participating in the same activity. So it has like the equal, um, it has the same significance, which is they're, they're both, like, the same type of consciousness. You could also read it, just to make it more complicated, uh, you could also read it as, like, oh, well, maybe it's almost like a...
0: Like uh, an input-output kind of thing? Like, exactly. I am at this quote, you say the next line? Exactly, yeah.
1: Um, so you could see it as, like, just running through, like, a, a program, almost, Um But then, of course, the uh, the excess, the surplus line that the jury uh, that she delivers at the end uh, would seem to
0: I really did
1: love you, or whatever. Yeah, um, that would seem to defeat that that reading. So, I think I don't know. I think I'm with you that uh, the uh, she has developed a ghost by the end of this episode. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how strong the other reading really is, to be honest. Um, yeah, and of course we see this dramatized in the penultimate sequence, the conversation between Kusanagi and Bato, which I think is also really interesting um, to yeah, discuss. I mean,
0: I guess to to start it out to like that penultimate scene. Um, I think it's also engaging in some ways with some banter that happens earlier in the episode. They're kind of tailing Marshall. and of course we get some like wow, the power of section nine, they can hack his GPS to like direct him uh the way the place that they want him to go. and of course, like remove his diplomatic immunity. um but we also kind of get this, uh, one, the series is introducing some of this complexity along with this idea of the potential for sexual relations and also the exploitation of androids and ai and of course like they have this commented on most explicitly by the major which call like she calls this a gross macho thing this like fascination with machines and fetishization of these robots um and Togasa, like, I, multiple times is basically, like, well, she's one to talk. Um, and that reaction has, like, this whole conversation has always been, like, there's gender happening here. <laughs> um, and there's gender happening here in, like, complex ways. Um, I think Togasa's reaction of she's one to talk is one that is very complex because, one, like, something like episode five where we see... The major in bed with these two other women strongly strongly implied that they are in like some sexual polycule um often this scene is seen as a direct allusion to the manga where there's like an explicit sex scene between the major and like a bunch of other women um and they get into this whole thing about like e-sex blah 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 but it like this, that scene is kind of explicitly some sort of homosexuality um, or the series also like has some sort of relationship that we'll get into between the Major and Bato. And, you know, I know other properties have, like I think the manga has mention of the Major having a boyfriend as well, but also reference to like her not staying with people very long. And so like the... Both within this show and I think also the show commenting on the broader understanding of Major Kusanagi as this person who is like bisexual or pansexual, who I think the show is very like, again, this is one of those things where I'm like, I don't know if this is intentional or not. This show has lots of clearly anime, like this is, I forget what the term anime nerds use for it but like um this is eye candy for a presumed male audience we get lots of shots uh even in these first three episodes of the major's ass of her getting out of a tank and you can see her ass and like the skin tight suit over her vulva um <laughs> there's if you want like a more explicit feminist reading of not necessarily this episode but like ghost in the shell standalone complex in general but it kind of touches on some of these things I'm talking about right now. There's this great article for women write about comics. Um, there was a series called Ghost in the Shell: The Major's Body by Claire Napier, and the third one in the series is specifically about Ghost in the Shell standalone complex. I had read it a while ago, and I actually reread it today because I remembered it, and I was like, "This is actually it is a good piece for you know." I'm speaking. Uh, I think the person who wrote it is was it was assigned female at birth i don't know they like what identity claire uh to in some of the pieces like refers to this idea of like being a man in a woman's body things so yeah i don't fully know i mean they're writing for women write about comics so they have some sort of sense of womanhood um and they're writing about what does it mean to inhabit a, a woman's body and how it goes through the shell standalone complex um on one hand has this like voyeuristic look at the major but at the same time whether this is intentional on the part of the like showrunners or if this is a thing that arises accidentally out of them doing this anime trope of we're going to show some eye candy to the the viewer with the fact that they are dealing with transhumanism and also in moments like this gender I think there is this tension if you're viewing it again, I'm a trans woman. So like, I also have this feminine perspective of what does it mean to inhabit a body that is sexualized? That is something that like the, the major in ghost in the shell standalone complex. I think sometimes you can at least read the story as kind of grappling with uh, her embracing her sexuality, her being sexualized what does that mean and what does it mean to have a synthetic body that cannot reproduce and yet still finds value in breasts and in like these other parts that um, if you talk to like doctors who will talk about like oh you know breasts are really for feeding babies and it's like breasts are for whatever you want like <laughs> you know I, I wish I could have fed my baby with mine the the like drugs that I had did not work. So, but I, like, I still like that. I have them. So no, they're not just for feeding babies. Um, <laughs> not to make you uh, a cis man have to listen to me talk about my breasts, but, um, like this is a thing that's happening with, uh, the major in the series, whether it's intentional or not. Um, and I think we're getting like, this is a moment where that is being intentionally to some degree called forth, And we get this, like, weird tension of, like, why is Togusa being indignant here? Is it because she has sexual relations with women and also would then in, like, some way sexualize women? Is it because she dresses herself up as a sexual being? This is, like, uh, I don't have a a true reading on this scene other than, like, again, like, gender is happening here in a very (laughs) interesting way to me. And I think then ties into that scene at the end of the episode with Kusanagi and Bato and this relationship with the body and how that intersects with what's been happening in the episode. Um, yeah. I don't know if you have specific thoughts on that. I know you, you wrote more episode or more notes about that end of the episode.
1: Oh yeah. Um, I, I mean, you've, you've covered a tremendous amount of, amount of ground there. <laughs> uh, so there I don't know how much how much more i can add to the specifically to this exchange between like Togusa and the major although i will say like i just just to respond to to your consideration earlier i i'll never complain uh about having to hear someone talk about breasts unless it's another like (laughs) lame boring like cis man so yeah don't worry about that yeah
0: you will you will always be the cis male representation. I think the like network that we are kind of a part of for this podcast is mostly like queer and or trans people. So once again, you are our token uh, straight cis dude. Well, I mean, <laughs> Just like in our campaign. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it, we Yeah, that's a story for another day, perhaps. Uh, well, I'm, I'm grateful to be here. Yeah. Um, but I will say, let me talk about this. This man reacting to the majors, uh, the, the majors like questioning. Um,
0: yeah, you were the Bato to my Motoko.
1: Oh, I, I want to be. I want to be Toga I might. I might be Bato. Um, You're a little bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> um, yeah. So,
0: Mister, I made a Twitter account for this podcast and never used it. <laughs>
1: listen, Twitter is really intimidating. I don't I really I don't know how to like I don't know how to do it
0: everyone yet. tweet at Connor at rabble AIs. yeah
1: thank you <laughs> maybe you, you you maybe you know the increased scrutiny will help me get in my comfort zone <laughs> okay <laughs> so uh, there's this so yeah this exchange it's really uh, again it's one of these moments where it's like well is this a throwaway um, is this just a joke but then you think about it? after watching it like 10 plus times like we both have um, and it stands out so there's this element of like the major is calling this like keeping like a female android as a uh, she's calling it like a macho thing and then Togusa has this like yeah this miffed like oh she's one to talk which she repeats twice i think i and you like you're talking earlier speculating like is this reaction because the major is like, you know, dresses up the way like in, you know, this kind of like sexualized outfit and she's taking exception to like men dressing up their androids in this like sexualized way? Or is it because of something else? Um, I think that in Togus's reaction, I think it is kind of something like that. But there's also another aspect which... I don't know if even Togusa seems to be thinking it, but is can we read this as, like, Kusanagi, you're one to talk because you are also macho in a certain way. And I don't know, you know, if I have a whole fleshed-out analysis about that and I'm interested in hearing your your thoughts on it, but when we see, like, her girlfriends or her, like, partners in episode five, there's definitely a dynamic of, like, Do these women just like hang around her apartment all day waiting for her to like come back? And like, and then they're like,
0: let's drink alcohol and have sex. And she's like, I have more work to do. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, no, I'm, I'm going to
1: work. And like, I don't know. Uh, there's definitely something there where it's like, it almost makes sense as a reaction if you interpret it as like, you're complaining about like, these guys having androids that they just like keep around at home and like dress up and like have sex with them at their convenience. But like you kind of also do this.
0: Yeah. I think also part of what's interesting to me about like, especially this happening in episode three is I think the, the film, uh, like especially the first ghost in the shell film, it is very easy to read the major as like very macho or like in some ways traditionally masculine in that film and I think it ties into the way that when I watch that film I see it more as a story about someone experiencing gender dysphoria or like body dysphoria whereas in the show I think we will get more explicit confirmation of like this feminine side of Major Kusanagi um, I think we are like getting this complex level in which in some ways she is macho in the way that women are sometimes macho which i think can feel slightly different or it odds with how i read a lot of the androgyny that exists in uh, major kusanagi in like the movie mm-hmm. where i think there's a more intentional um her being at odds with her body which in this show is not the the same image that we get i think we get more of a confirmation and i think as the show goes on i think uh like assertion that this is the right body for her which i yeah that like that difference is in important or key and again it's like one of these reasons why i think for me the way that the major like embraces her body and her sexuality in the show feels far more uh euphoric than dysphoric to me and of course, also, we get like the explicit connection to the wristwatch here, which, you know, without spoiling too much, we'll, we'll get into more later. But, you know, we get her toying with it a little bit. We get a few moments where she kind of touches it throughout this episode. And that wristwatch being emblematic or symbolic of, you know, on one end, there is this like Oh, is this also fetishism? Is she also loving some sort of mechanical object? Um, and the way that she was like criticizing Marshall for doing this, but at the same time, that wristwatch is, I think, the clearest symbol within the show as this show goes on of Major Kusanagi having some connection with the body as her body, and not, not just like this is the most efficient body or like the best body for my job. But like, no, this is my body. And it has meaning to me as like a body that I have chosen in some way.
1: Yeah. I think this, this sequence here, this conversation between Kusanagi and Bato and not to linger like too long in episode three, cause we have several more.
0: Yeah. We're like an hour in and we have three more episodes to discuss. <laughs>
1: um, I do think this is really significant though. Um, this the story of the doll. Bate basically asking, "Oh, do you really think that the Jerry like loved Marshall and that she was protecting him?" And Kusanagi has this response, which is like not really it doesn't seem to be answering the question. Where she tells a story about how she had a doll when she was younger and crushed it accidentally, which, as per anime rules, we know is important because it's shown in the opening credits. Um, yeah. <laughs> so. There's there's definitely some significance to this here and, and just the fact that it's weird, it it's marked out as being like a, a, a moment of where they're kind of asking you to interpret what's going on. And so, you know, is is Kusanagi saying like Oh, that for Marshall, the Jerry was like this doll that I had, that was this object that I loved, but like I, you know, I loved it too much or I was rough with it or like youthful and not you know not careful and i crushed it um is she saying oh well yeah the jerry was basically just like an object
0: or yeah or is it like perhaps the jerry was trying to figure out a body yeah was childlike in that way that i'm identifying more with the jerry unit here than talking about Marshall crushing a fetishistic object out of love in the same way that I did.
1: Yeah. And and that's where it comes back to the, um, the discussion of this wristwatch where she's clutching and examining her wristwatch as she like, a- as she answers this, this question. And then of course, later we'll get a very explicit um, statement from her about the significance of this, of this object. So maybe this is something that we can maybe revisit later uh, at at that episode, but definitely something to, to take note of if you're, if you're watching it along with us.
0: So we can maybe move on to episode four here. Um, it's interesting to me, like, I mean, I intentionally chose to do six episodes and not seven episodes. Cause I think we get like this interesting two halves where the first half is very engaged in the episodic nature of police procedural, the case of the week. Um, it is, uh, in a way that I think sometimes at first viewing you're not necessarily aware of. It is doing these cases very intentionally to introduce you to concepts. Whereas episode four, five and six, five and six are like very directly like to be continued next time on, they don't have those like specific callouts like some anime, but like they are basically like in our notes, we've grouped five and six together as like one discussion thing. But even episode four is kind of like it starts out with like, oh, here's the next case. But really, this case becomes what episode five and six are about as well, which is this again further like this is really getting into we saw briefly like, oh, the tank can hack into the Hawkeye. Um, This like there's this quote about sci fi that great sci fi doesn't just imagine the automobile. It imagines the traffic jam. It's like, what is the problem that will arise? Um, I would go even further of not only does it imagine the traffic jam, it also like super like the best sci-fi will imagine global warming caused by car emissions, (laughs) right? Like, how much is this technology that seems like useful or great in some way also going to have its downsides? And this is another reason why I love Ghost in the Shell. It is so good at saying like let's take this these ideas of technology that might happen in the future around cyberized or like cyborg bodies and really begin to explore like what are the implications and you know what is the traffic jam of the body what is the global warming of like the cyberized body (laughs) Um, and so we see like oh the body can be hacked and here we get the like oh wow they can like Fully surveil everything that you're seeing for like three months, I think it is yeah that it's like good for, um, and that's just like truly terrifying, like from this point of view i i g I don't fully know like what the Japanese culture approach to government surveillance is I know like I have friends in the u k i know the uk has a lot of government surveillance and definitely the u.s loves to at the very least flirt with it especially post 9-11 there's been a lot of government surveillance and like especially in a post 9-11 world this idea is like very um i'm gonna keep using the word resonant because it's i i like using resonant to refer to like is this intentionally or not referring to something it doesn't really matter it still resonates in some way with it this like technology is very strongly resonating with this idea of surveillance especially post 9 11 and we also get this this little reminder of like oh like we get section 9 portrayed as the good guys here who seem free of corruption they are viewing the corrupt corruption that's happening elsewhere in the government and they are trying to stop it. You know, the, the police detective that uncovers this, the way that people have been hacked into sends it to Togasa um, section nine's investigating it. Uh, it's still like very good guy in that way. But then also, especially uh, Kusanagi here, like articulates this viewpoint, but it also is kind of just accepted by the group that like, The issue is not that this truly terrifying mode of like surveillance and invasion into personal privacy is occurring. It's not like an ethical objection. It's like, Oh, literally like they're like, that's fine. The law says we can do that. And they're like, Oh, well they didn't do the proper bureaucracy and like sign the proper paperwork uh, that you need to do in order to do this. And they're like, Oh, well now it's illegal. Now we're going to look into it. Now it's a problem that, like, I think the show, this is that mo- a moment of the show trusting you to see what's horrifying here and to also see the way that Section 9 is, like, in some ways complicit with that horror.
1: Yeah, I think this is, it, it almost reminds me, like, in a way of, uh, there's this narrative trope of, like, especially in, uh, I think, like, mystery films of... The protagonist, like, kind of accidentally stumbling into something that just like slowly evolves into something bigger. Um, I'm thinking an obvious example is like Blue Velvet, where it's like, oh, I found this severed ear in my yard. Like, what is this about? And then, you know, like, eventually uncovering this whole criminal enterprise. I think there's an aspect of this where Section 9 is like, yeah, we're just fixers for the government we're not really, like, out to, like, enforce corruption or, like, certainly not justice. But because of this, like, technicality, like, oh, now... To me, there was almost this sense of, like, obligation where the Major's just like, well, there's nothing wrong with using Interceptors. And Togus is like, well, but they didn't have the proper paperwork. And everyone's just like, oh, okay, well, yeah, I guess we have to look into it now. (laughs) um and then you know <laughs> yeah. at, of course as they like find more and more it's like oh this whole there's you know endless crimes going on so they just become more and more enmeshed but like starting off it's like almost you know accidental
0: yeah toga Satu is definitely the i think audience insert who um doesn't fully voice like but you get a sense through like even just reactions like there's a part where he's interviewing Like, oh, this isn't an interview, blah, 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 with, like, one of his former um, teammates uh, that's, like, a police officer um, and, like, shows this, like, kind of surprise at, oh, you could, like, even measure the arc of someone's piss. um, Where, like, Togusa seems to, again, not in a way that the, like, show wants to bludgeon you with, but does seem to be the one who's, like, this is also just kind of morally bad. (laughs) what this technology is and what they're doing with it and i i think this show will often use tokusa as um kind of an audience insert i i'm saying kind of here because i think anime has a habit of having like very clearly audience insert characters where their entire personality and existence is to be the the audience who will voice things and say like can you explain this technology to me um in this like very unsubtle way of doing world building that again like ghost in the shell is so much better at but i think often Togusa does fill in that role as the one who is the newest to section nine is the newest to the way that they do things is the one who i think in many ways is marked as being like kind of old-fashioned, not in this hyper-religious, like, I am opposed to the cyberization of bodies, but also has not cyberized his body. This is remarked upon, and it's specifically remarked upon when he is, like, firing weapons. I think in the very first episode, he's firing his revolver, which the revolver is often a signifier of this idea of something that is kind of old-fashioned, is not as powerful or advanced as a lot of other guns and yet also is a very reliable weapon uh revolvers are very unlikely to jam they're very easy to clean It it is a weapon that like the revolver kind of standing in for Togusa and this relationship to technology that exists of like the revolver can't be jammed in the same way that like Togusa's brain yeah. probably can't be hacked the way that like batos could and that Major Kusanagi proves in a later scene can hack Bato's brain to make him punch himself. Um, so the like, we, we're getting some of this here as well, and I think we get we get a little bit of Togasa being the one who's like, "I want to look into this because it is wrong," even though again the show's not like having a big moment where they discuss Togusa being like, "This is." a bad thing that shouldn't should be stopped in the major being like, no, we like to get it more subtly presented of just like, Oh, they didn't do the paperwork. Right. Like Togus is like finding the way to say like, let's please look into this. <laughs> um And the major like acquiescing.
1: Yeah. And I, I think um just as like an addendum here, there's, which I think we'll talk about in a minute, but the idea of like, I think, to a large extent, this just reflects characters living organically in a world where technology has progressed to a point where government is essentially all-powerful, or or nearly so. I mean, we see this, like, right off the bat. We talked a little bit in episode one about, like, how Section 9 is, like, presented as just having overwhelming, like, capability and force. But then it just gets, like, kind of unfurled more and more as the series goes on like okay well they can hack your eyes well first they can implant like interceptors then they can hack your eyes yeah like or they can monitor your vision they can hack your eyes and then as we find out like your whole body can be hacked and essentially turn you into like a puppet all at the the leisure of like whoever is behind the controls
0: and like even affect your memory in some way um this is like skipping ahead a little bit but um in episode five and six we get these things where like when people saw the laughing man they would then describe to like police sketch artists the face and then what they would describe would be this logo of what i thought i would do is i would start an anime podcast with a (laughs) episode about ghost in the shell or whatever the quote we are the laughing Um, man (laughs) Um, but, and, like, this implication of, like, people not even quite being aware that what they were seeing was a logo and not an actual face because the the hack was, like, that, uh, totalizing of their, yeah, their, like, understanding of what had happened. That it was not just their vision that was being hacked, it was, like, literally what they remembered, what they conceived of as the face of the laughing man. So, yeah, this, this episode is definitely giving us some introduction to The Laughing Man. Five and six will go further on it. Uh, spoilers, if this is your first time watching it and you're watching along with the podcast, The Laughing Man is going to be a major, it, like, the Laughing Man case is the continuous arc of the series that, like, four, five, and six is suggesting, the sense of, like, greater continuity. Of course, we're also going to get more of these, like, interspersed case of the week police procedural kind of things that will continue to develop themes but like this is going to be like the main focus for uh, a lot of the rest of the series also before we move on to five and six i just want to make my like quick note um i think this gets mentioned later on as well but this is like why i was joking about you being the the bato to my motoko, which is we get this like these weights being delivered for Bato and this like reference of like that doesn't do anything when you have cybernetic muscles (laughs) like there's no point in lifting weights and to me and like I think the way that some of it will play out in later episodes as well we get this contrast with Bato of like Bato lifts weights because he's a man and that's what a man does and I think he approaches that in a way that it The series suggests he approaches it in a way that is more unthinking, that is more just like, well, of course this is what I do, compared to the major that I think the series will show as more actively, like, affirming this is the gender that I am choosing, whether or not that's, like, the gender that she was born into, which, again, the way that this series is transhumanist, I think, like... There are lots of people, lots of trans people, especially who read, especially in Ghost in the Shell standalone complex, as um, Major Kuzunagi being explicitly a trans woman, which again, like to me, the trans resonance is more important than the specific representation that that being named. But I, yeah, I think this is like something I find fascinating, and one of these things where I'm like, this show is engaging with gender in some way and I again I don't know how much like my reading of it is intentional on their part and in some ways I don't care it's just part of why I love this show
1: (laughs) yeah I think I mean it's definitely there and that's like I mean that's enough right that this is actually a point that like it's kind of amusing well you pointed out and I hadn't considered it which like maybe makes sense but you're like absolutely correct that there's, like, significance there. Um, I think, you know, for Bato's character, and then also just as, like, an instance of, like, gender happening, the, like, performative, like, weightlifting, that, like, oh, yeah, this is my hobby because I'm Bato. Um, yeah. There's also a... Uh, there's another, like, angle to this. And when you pointed out the thing with Bato, it also made me think there's the scene where Togusa is... He's looking at the photos... And he sees the photos of his friend's wife, and it reminds him of, like, his own life. And he's, like, yeah. talking to himself, like, oh, I should call home. And then the major is, like, very creepily just, like, watching him <laughs> as he's doing this. Yeah. And it was... When I, like... When I was watching the this that scene this time, I was like, what emotion is this? Like, how do we even read the major right now? Like, what... What is going on here? I I think I have like maybe some thoughts, but I was I'm very interested to to hear what your what your interpretation of this is.
0: Yeah, I mean I think some of it too there's a lot of stuff where um in this series, like especially re watching it multiple times, where I start going, like, mm, do they have the major watching here because they want to set up something that you don't realize they're setting up yet, which is in the next episode, you're going to see the major with like, you know, these two, her inner like lesbian polyhool basically. And again, like in the same way that Togasa is like, oh, I need to call home and say like, hey, sorry, I'm not going to come home today. I'm working in the office. Like she's going to do the same thing, but that there's then this like, contrast being drawn of Togase again being this like more traditional like having this traditional marriage that is very like what society in general expects what Japanese society expects that you are married to like someone of the opposite gender and ideally procreative within it um, which is again like American society has a lot of this assumption as well and the major being specifically just like I'm just like chilling out in a giant bed (laughs) With my two girlfriends and uh, rejecting the cocktail because I'm going to work. Like, I'm still doing the same thing (laughs) that Togusa did. I'm still saying, like, no, I'm not going to, like, be with you tonight. But also drawing that contrast between, like, here's their similarity, their, like, devotion to work. Here's their difference, their, like, relationship to the body and sexuality and like you know togesib fulfilling the traditional expectation and the major like very clearly issuing it even if they arrive at the same basic outcome which is i'm gonna do some work because the laughing man
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh that's that's really interesting take my first impression was almost like so much of, like, the relationship between the Major and Togesa, especially, like, early on in this series, is almost, like... I don't know exactly how to describe it, but it's almost, like, a warm, like, bemusement it, where it's, like, there's, like, a tender, like, playfulness to it, almost. And I I kind of took this as being, like, the Major, like maybe, like, touched and bemused by, like, Togus's, like, faithfulness and, like, tenderness to, like, his wife. Yeah. Like, where he, And it's, like, down home, I'm a family man. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> like, where he's, like, looking at, like, these, like, lewd photos, and then he's, like, oh, yeah, like, my wife, like... I love my wife. Yeah, I need to call her.
0: Oh, sometimes she'll dress up as a nice thing for me, too. (laughs) She'll dress up in sexy lingerie. I should call her and tell her that I'm not coming home today.
1: Yeah, yeah. So and then the expression on the major's face is like this very hard to read. I think that, by the way, as an aside, the way that the major is like is drawn, her facial expressions are fantastic throughout this series. They're like perfectly inscrutable sometimes but uh yeah there's this expression of like almost like bemusement that i found to be really uh, really interesting
0: um, so yeah i think we can we can move on to five and six here again kind of discussing them together because there's the most direct continuation of a story here and this is really like i think it's very easy The first time you're watching it to see episode four and to see it as a bit of a case of a week where it's like, oh, they didn't quite solve it, but they're like starting to unravel some of it. And then five and six is just like, oh, no, there's like a huge conspiracy. There's corruption on top of corruption. There's multiple things at work. This is this is a far bigger case than the viewer expected, as well as like section nine themselves expected in episode four.
1: Definitely. And I think this is also, these these two episodes are also really good point for us to to start asking this question of, like, what really is the nature of the society that's being, like, presented here? I think we've seen enough, you know, especially through episodes five and six, we've seen this society, like, through enough angles to really start to, like, form a, a gestalt, like picture and well i mean i'll just put this out there like is this a dystopia yeah (laughs) and i think
0: it's like when you watch the movie ghost in the shell there's so much of the aesthetics of dystopia in that film uh we see so much of like the decay of infrastructure in i mean it's a film it, it has to be faster with some of this stuff um, and I think is also less directly engaged in it I've always read the Society of ghost in the shell standalone complex as uh, a dystopia in the way that dystopias actually exist in modern society which is that they have all the sheen and veneer of a utopia you have the glistening buildings you have uh, this, story being told to you about like the greatness of what's happening, the surplus of excesses, that this is like truly a great time to be alive. And yet when you actually like look at what is happening, there's corruption. There is, you know, average people that having no power or agency really, especially in the face of these very powerful governments. And so like from my perspective, I think ghost in the shell standalone complex and the world that it takes place in is a very compelling dystopia because of the fact that there's so much existing to try and remove the aesthetics of dystopia um which i think is often how these things truly function especially in like modern society in modern capitalism where you know truly uh like you claim to be against capitalism and yet you use a phone and a computer. Ha, like (laughs) gotcha. (laughs) look at what capitalism has given you. It's given you an iPhone and you're like, yeah, but I would also like rights, please.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I, I, uh, I definitely agree. I think this is a dystopia. I think it's an extremely compelling dystopia. Like as you were saying, this is actually something that I think that I'd like to touch on again in our next episode because i think there's a lot i mean I, I have a lot of thoughts on this especially as it relates to like our our lived reality but i think this is where in episodes five and six you really start to peel back the layers i mean you're already aware of like the, the power of government um it's abuse of rights press blackouts and um, surveillance and all of these things but This is where you really start to peel back the layers of, like, just how dysfunctional this this government is. In my notes, I put down technocratic feudalism, which, like, may not... It's really not entirely accurate, but was a term that I couldn't get out of my head starting in episode two when this, like, tank just, like, crashes into this urban center and the government's like, okay, we're evacuating That like... This whole section of the city, and you see this shot of like all the people from this section of the city just like fleeing and having absolutely no idea like what the hell is happening, and just being like herded like cattle like be out of their like homes, just essentially like at the drop of a hat because of this like you know this mistake by this, like, military-industrial yeah, complex. That they also
0: very easily could have fixed, like, super early on by just shooting it with the fast-acting Mountain Dew gun um, that they, like, specifically <laughs> held out because they just didn't want people to know that they had made an anti-tank weapon. Yeah, to, to protect
1: their investment. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so And, like, yeah, so, like, literally could have been, like, on the road before it even got to the blockade, and they just shoot it with that gun and it'd be over with. Um, and instead they're like... Mm, let's see if they like can stop it with other things because we don't want this investment to to like (laughs) yeah and you know not pay off and
1: we so we don't see i mean we don't see an election at any point but i think we know enough from the even just from the discussion we've had like we know that democracy is impossible in such like a society in the face of like as you said earlier like the the government, the power of government, and then the power of like, essentially godlike individual hackers, the agency of the average person is like, is reduced to to almost nothing. There's there's no transparency, there is public misinformation, corruption at every turn of government, like to an extent that's incomprehensible. Even like, I think watching this the first time, the way that this like corruption narrative unfolds in five and six, you're just like, what the fuck is happening? Like, even as like the, the viewer in this privileged position and, and go ahead.
0: Yeah. There's also this, this sense, like throughout the series, we'll see that like, it also envisions the only real like possibility is turning elements of the state against itself or like powers of the state against itself, which like, in one sense is a thing that's going to be happening with section nine, but also like what the laughing man can do is also exploit these vulnerabilities that the state is exploiting in ways that have been legalized and formalized. And the laughing man is just better at them than they are. (laughs) And that's like in some ways the, the hope of like finding some way to, address this corruption that like without that, without that ability to like harness and use the weapon of the state against itself, like there's no other way you can envision this playing out or, or any sort of like resolution occurring. And I I also am not positive that the show ends on a great note. Sorry, spoilers, but (laughs) that's not too much Um, of a spoiler. Yeah. But I mean, I guess we can talk a little bit about the, the laughing man, here as well Yeah, i think um Um, this is where we get the most of it like an introduction to it yeah i
1: think uh the the kind of this what we've just discussed it really relates directly to the central like mystery of the episode which is this virus maybe not virus that we kind of learn more about as the series goes on but yeah i think we can we can talk about that in relation to kind of what's happening. Generally we can view that this phenomenon uh, through the prism of like this overall social analysis.
0: Yeah. And I think we, we definitely get early signs here. So one, this is like where the show, you know, we started with episode one discussion of like that thesis statement at the very beginning of the episode. And here we kind of end with like, Oh, here we're going to like explicitly talk about, standalone complex like we get the how this relates to the laughing man you know when major kusanagi is blowing off her polycule to look into the laughing man case it's like someone talking about this idea of um, standalone individuals rising out but somehow connected to like a complex that exists within the web and then we get the discussion later on with aramaki where Aramaki's kind of saying, like, the people who say that they are the Laughing Man are copies without an original. Whereas, like, Kusanagi seems to be less convinced by that, but also seems to, like, in some ways be adopting elements of the Laughing Man referring to like farce and performance but also not to the extent of these people who are like claiming to be the laughing man or have been inspired by the laughing man who they cannot connect to a clear virus in the same way that they could the security detail who becomes like essentially possessed and starts shouts like let the purge begin or whatever <laughs> um, <laughs> and like tries to to uh, beat this like police chief or whatever the, over the head we're also getting all of this like nice subtle drops of the connection with Serrano and Holland and stuff. Like the show often trusts the audience to be like Aramaki makes a comment about how great the weather is in the Netherlands (laughs) as like a way to give you more information about the connections that are happening here in ways that I'm not saying are like the most subtle, but I think also are easy to miss if you're just kind of zoning out watching an anime show. this show again often does not like put everything out on the table it's good at subtlety and trusting the audience to pick up on things that are happening i know a thing i was also struck with this time was this parallel that's occurring between the conversation that aramaki is having about and like the major are having about like standalone and then complex and then there's also this conversation that they have about the team and how section nine only functions as a team, like within like the individuals. And we're getting this, they're using different terminology, but we're getting these like moments where they seem to be referring to similar concepts or parallel concepts. At the very least, the show seems to be setting up some sort of parallel or similarity between section nine and like what's happening with the laughing man.
1: Definitely. I think, uh, so the, the, the team comment that Aramaki makes is, is very fascinating. It's, it's one of those where it's like, Oh, is this just like a cheeky comment? But if you think about it for, for a minute, it's, I think it, to me at least is another, another illustration of this or or acknowledgement of this, like disparity that exists in, in society, um, in power and agency where like, you know, section nine is is obviously extremely powerful because it's the collection of people with these resources. But Kusanagi, like on her own, is undoubtedly like the the star player or like the ringer to to stay with the sports the sports uh, metaphor. And I think Aramaki is in this kind of clever way just acknowledging, like, yeah whoever has control whoever has like the greater mastery over this like technology is like clearly more more powerful than than anyone else we can't just like have a bunch of like weak or you know for the sake of comparison like weaker individuals band together and achieve things like we need people who have this like level of of capability
0: yeah this the other thing that like stood out to me here as well i have a little like section of the notes here called knee of but <laughs> um part of what got me thinking about this was uh aramaki talks when they're talking about uh what was happening with like the laughing man and these people believing themselves to be the laughing man or in some way being tied to the laughing man trying to act out some sort of desire from the laughing man and refers to The audience being a part of performance, which I think specifically Aramaki refers to like within plays. Definitely this theory, like, originated or became most significant in terms of plays, but is also (laughs) crept into other media, including like film theory, where there's the idea of the spectator is discussed often and how the spectator changes the work, the act of a film being viewed is a and like interpreted is an interactive event in the same way that reading a book uh the way that you read a book and interpret it and even the way that you might pace yourself through a book and things like that are going to affect what the book is and kind of the the art in that way um and this like it got me on this was i thought about this today or like late last night and then today uh so i haven't done a bunch of the reading so this is just my like my preview for future discussions i i first actually thought about uh andre bazin so andre bazin i mentioned earlier beloved of the french new wave was this french film theorist and i think at least my view of bazin my understanding of him one he wrote a lot about realism um and whenever you're talking about realism which i think also in a way even as like cyberpunk genre fiction a ghost in the shell standalone complex is concerned with realism really bazen was like a big writer in this way but also in many ways i at least view bazen as this like key turning point or focal point within film studies i think a lot of modern film studies has if not roots directly in Bazin still has like some resonance with the ideas that he put forth. I think French new wave and their connection to Bazin has a big, is a big part of why this, this is the case with film theory. And so I specifically started thinking about some of the way that Bazin complicated uh, Walter Benjamin, this idea of the work of art in the age of its technological reproducibility which is this like significant essay that was written that is kind of engaging with uh, what does it mean when like when art can be reproduced what does the photograph mean what does by extension then film mean what is the relationship that exists now when there's a copy of a thing in a way that like copying a manuscript A long time ago was not truly a copy Um, it was not this like direct one-to-one copy or one-to-one with artifacts copy there was like a greater degree of each copy was its own original that just isn't the same with like copies of a film you know with dvds with the way that files can be infinitely reproduced and so this essay um, which i need to dig up and find again to reread was kind of a a key piece in how a lot of current theory thinks about this aspect of art and reproduction, which I think also ghost in the shell is engaged with. Um, There's a lot uh, like, I think the standalone complex is in some ways in a perhaps parallel way, getting at this idea of like, what's the relationship between the individual or the original and the copy um, or that which like comes afterwards. And Andre Bazin was one who, who complicated this idea a lot. If I recall from the, and some of this I'm basing off of an essay that I did read today that was like specifically comparing Bazin and uh, Benjamin's like thinking on this, but Walter Benjamin was like very, uh, there's this idea of the aura of art and that reproduction caused a loss of that aura. And has some very complex thing like this is why i need to reread it because uh some of it is like this loss of aura is actually important Mm -hmm. for like the politicization of art in this way that is like useful to this leftist point of view but that is also what yeah but that is also what the nazis also benefit from this like destruction of the life of art and like the death and the rendering of and so it's like this dual-edged sword. And Bazen A lot of what Bazen's complication of this was about was... Benjamin has, if I recall, kind of... Uh, if you think about it, of like... There is reproduction and there is aura. And like aura decreases as reproduction increases. The more you reproduce something, the more it loses its aura. And Bazen was like, this is actually less directly coupled than that. It's less one to one. And aura can be achieved reachieved through multiplicity. Through um, you know, when looking at film, Bazan would to me talking about how the coexisting of elements, spatially or temporally, the the illusion of continuous motion that we get from film is literally because the multiplicity is still images and those still images if you look at them individually have a loss of aura that then seeing it move like regains some new or different sense of aura and so like i have like all these thoughts going in my head now that i'm excited about as we continue to watch this because I know the show is going to dig into this deeper and i'm like oh, i'm gonna start like reading these essays and and get deeper into it an interesting thing so the the essay that i referred to uh, was published in this book called Opening Bazen and I was looking through, I was trying to find it because I remembered having read it uh, years ago when I was in grad school and really liking that essay and so I was looking through the, the table of contents and I saw another one that um, I didn't remember that was about the actual history of Bazen in Japan. Bazen was obviously writing at the time of French New Wave um, a little bit before and also somewhat concurrent and I guess there was a translation that it took a very long time. It was one writer, and it was a poet who like was not did not study film, um, had not seen any of the movies Bazan was writing about, um, and took him a decade to translate all of it. Um, it was released in parts in Japan, and uh, really did not take hold until the '90s when Kahir du Cinema in Japan. Uh, so there's like a Japanese version of it. They started translating articles that were published in the original French journal as well as publishing their own. And a lot of the writers there began to take some interest into Bazen. And so there's some evidence I found that really around the 90s is when Bazen kind of became a topic of study in Japan, which is kind of ironic because Bazen frequently wrote about like Kurosawa and Japanese cinema. But that also like adds further fuel to my like, I'm, like, I don't know if the showrunners who did Ghost in the Shell standalone complex were thinking about Bazen or reading Bazen, but it was something in the air around the time that like the original film was made. Um, and then the show and, and stuff afterwards. So yeah, I'm just, this is my bullshit hour where I'm going to like get into deep film theory. I've decided this is what I'm going to bring to the show. <laughs>
1: Well, I don't think that's all you bring, uh, but it, it is a it is a nice wrinkle. And, and yeah, I think like having theoretical perspectives. I am just I'm already like seeing it in our like in our conversations generally. This like happens sometimes, but it, I think just this is going to be a part of the podcast. So uh, we'll be sure to clearly demarcate it for the for our viewers so they can skip over it. Whenever we get into our like theoretical <laughs> bullshit, no, you have to listen to it. <laughs> yeah, or or else, or else you're not worthy. I'm n- I'm not editing this. I'm not editing this. <laughs> um, so there's there's definitely more to say about that, uh, all of that. But I think to bring it back specifically to the events of the episode, I'll make reference to to another one of the leading theorists of our time, Hideo Kojima, who. Uh, <laughs> I, I suspect, I have no evidence of this, but I suspect really loves this series because there's this very Kojima-esque, in my interpretation at least, this idea of infectiousness in the virus towards the end of episode six, where obviously it's suspected that this is a virus that's affecting all these individuals and driving them to like go purging or whatever. And then it's discovered it's not, and we've already made reference to some of this discussion between the major and Aramaki, but I think it's worth revisiting because it's they don't really seem to have an uh, adequate explanation. I mean, no one does, but I think there's hints uh, that the show is giving us that there's this idea of the of ideology or ideas spreading virally, um, and this is the Kojima bit that I think he would really like that all of the would-be terrorists or assassins um, were all set off by this, this, this announcement, this press conference. And then there's also a reference to like, Oh, the seed was planted in the initial laughing man incident. And then it was, it, it basically like sprouted with this most recent episode. So there's a parallel that's set up here between like this virus that, you know, is implanting people with executable commands in their cyber brain. And then this, like, ideological phenomenon that's spreading through the population and making them, like, almost creating this, like, quote-unquote spontaneous generation of, like, revolutionary ideology. People just, like, rising up spontaneously as a result of this thing. And I think we see that in Kusanagi. It's hinted. Because she, as she adopts the Laughing Man's language of like force and performance, which you mentioned earlier, but we also see it in the character of Nanao, who is like a version of this where he, he wants to become the Laughing Man or he wants to be known as the Laughing Man. But in, in any event, there's this preoccupation of the, the same kind of preoccupation of, of being um, infatuated and identifying with, with the Laughing Man, wanting to be to become him that we see here that I think is really fascinating. Yeah.
0: Well, I, this might be a good time to, to wrap up, expect more discussion of ideology and the work of art and aura in the age of technological reproducibility and what that means for the human body. We will be discussing episodes seven through 13 next time. So we're going to do seven episodes and, yeah feel free to watch along we will be back in two weeks um i don't know if you have any final words before i do my last send-offs
1: um just thanks for joining us we're grateful to to all viewers such that may exist and uh yeah we're looking forward to to going forward with you
0: and you can follow me at fox momnia on twitter uh where can people follow you connor
1: uh at, at rabelais r-a-b-b-e-l-a-i-s
0: i i always assumed it was rabble AIs, as in artificial intelligence that is rabble. well
1: kind of <laughs> yeah but it's it's a it's a bad it's a bad twitter name okay <laughs> it's but i was trying to do a pun on like the author rabelais and then also make it about ai but uh you know that worked out well yeah um you can also
0: follow the show at ghost divers pod we'll post updates when uh, episodes go out also if you have questions that you want to submit uh so like the introductory episode is probably going to get into this but we are recording this months before, like, at least a month before it is released. But we are going to do a question bucket episode uh, after it's all released. So feel free to write in the address is ghostdiverspod at gmail.com. So uh, you can submit there. If you have specific episodes in mind, uh, feel free to like mark, like, okay, it's about this section or like this anime, this section of episodes, whatever. Specificity will probably help us, especially because there'll be a little bit of time in between from when we record this and when we answer. I also want to do a shout out to the Export Audio Network that is hosting us. Big thanks to Autumn there, my friend, who has given me some advice on starting a podcast and uh, graciously offered to host us so that we don't have to pay money as well for an account if you want to support export audio um you can go to patreon.com slash export audio they're great i i mostly just listen to the export audio podcast which is basically just like my friend and their wife um and it gives me that same brain feeling you get when you listen to a podcast and you're like these are my friends and they're making jokes for me except in this case it's actually true and not a weird parasocial relationship that podcasts illicit within people so um, just remember if you're not our friends you're not really our friends
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah and uh, I, I guarantee you, we are the worst podcast on, on the network so uh, if you enjoyed this at all uh, yeah please uh, check out the other content because I'm sure it's much better
2: she's so cold and human it's something human She's incredible math, just incredible math, and is she really human, she's just something
0: I'm cutting all of this. I'm just chatting with you. What what we're
1: trying to say is give us your money. Just like hit subscribe. Yeah. (laughs) Click the button and, you know. Slam that subscribe button. And enter in your credit card information.
0: Just, you know, just like DM us at Ghost Divers Pod and just give us your credit (laughs) card information so that we can just order whatever we want.
1: Also, we won't accept any questions unless you also give us your social security number. So, just remember that. All
0: right, I'm gonna stop recording. Okay, now. sounds good.